The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I've bumped around a little bit more than he has. I think, uh, you know, he's got uh, the ability to grasp an um, enormous amount of technical detail and put it together in his head. Um, I think I would say that I'm more about bringing people together to solve problems. George Curian is the CEO of NetApp, a storage technology company whose stock market value is more than $20 billion. Now, normally I like to start off talking about what makes my guests unique, but in this case, George has a lot in common with another Silicon Valley tech executive named Curian. His twin brother, Thomas, is president at Oracle. George and I could spend a lot of time talking about how unlikely it is that anyone climbs to the top level of a multi-billion dollar Silicon Valley tech company, much less that two brothers would do it. We did talk about that a bit, but we also talked about strategy and the challenges he's faced leading in a period of rapid change. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit and subscribe. I sat down with George Curian at the New York Stock Exchange, three years into his tenure as NetApp CEO. Here's George Curian. You've got three brothers, including a twin who also happens to be an enterprise technology executive in the C-suite. Is that weird? No, it isn't. Do you guys see that coming? No, I don't think <laughs> we ever set out to be in the C-suite. We grew up in a uh, wonderful family in India at a time where computers didn't exist. In fact, I never saw a computer till I came to the States in 86. Mm. And uh, my mom and dad were sort of guiding influences in our development. They were both self-made people. My dad was the first in his family to go to college. I uh, grew up in a very poor family in Kerala in India. My mom emigrated to India from uh, Sri Lanka. She came by herself at a time where that was unusual for women to do. And so they held and She was college educated at a time yeah. when that was unusual yeah. too. And so she was, they were both sort of the guiding spirits in helping us find our own paths. The fact that Thomas and I ended up in the same place is a source of amusement to us. It's a coincidence, <laughs> I would say, more than anything else. But you guys came over to the U.S. together to Princeton, That's right? correct. So you guys sort of like running together. We did. We're good friends, best of friends. I think it was one of those uh, things that helped us ease the transition from India to the U.S. You know, it was good to have your best friend with you when, you, when we came. So when, when you look at the differences between your path as an executive and his path as an executive, what do you mark as maybe the differences in your approach, in uh, your skill set that maybe have led you uh, along the path that you've taken? We, uh, you know, we switched places in some sense. He, both of us went to school. He went to a consulting firm early in his career. 
and then uh, went to uh, Oracle where he's been for a long time. I uh, went to Oracle first out of school, then switched, went to McKinsey, the consulting firm. I've bumped around a little bit more than he has. I think, uh, you know, he's got uh, the ability to grasp an um, enormous amount of technical detail and put it together in his head. Um, I think I would say that I'm more about bringing people together to solve problems uh, and put teams together. And maybe the experience of having worked in a variety of industries gives me the ability to see different patterns uh, from different institutions and uh, different industries. What was the toughest time? Um, in your career, whether it was a time when something you were working on just didn't seem to be panning out the way it was supposed to, uh, something else that was maybe a roadblock in your way? I think it's always been, you know, when uh, you find that uh, things aren't moving the way that you want or the way that you've, uh, you know, set your team up to expect and uh, you know, everybody has high aspirations for impact and when you're stagnant, it's difficult, right? So at times, you know, about three years into my tenure at NetApp, we had brought out a really game-changing technology to customers, but the company as a whole was not set up to help our customers absorb that technology. Hmm. And so it was required a lot of transformational thinking about the way we went to market with customers and that was frustrating because you know especially in an institution like ours which had succeeded for a long time uh, transformation is not the easiest thing to tell a team that has historically been successful but we needed to so instead of you have the right product you felt like yep. and you, you were trying to sell it to the right customer but the customer wasn't set up to know how to use and get the most out of the product. That's correct. And NetApp wasn't set up to help them correct. to do that. You were used to being like, here it is. Correct. Good luck. And I think that's exactly one of the biggest transformational changes that technology companies will have to take on. You know, we have for the longest time been in the business of selling technology to technologists. I think uh, it's our responsibility now to deliver a business outcome because just giving companies or our customers technology alone won't be enough. You'll have to actually help them get the full benefits like you said. So we had to put in specialized consulting teams to help our customers you know, understand the best practices and get the full benefits of it. So that's that expensive. That's expensive to do. Yep, it's expensive. You had to make trade-offs between doing things the traditional way. So we had to drive efficiencies in the traditional way we did things uh, by segmenting our customer base so that we paid more attention to the biggest customers, leveraged our reseller channel for the smaller ones, and uh, took some of the savings from that and built out these specialized consulting teams to help our customers transition to the new technology. Hmm. When did you figure out you uh, thought you wanted to be a CEO? I think that, uh, you know, I, to be honest, I never really had a plan to be a CEO. I've uh, done a lot of things in my career that were interesting to me. I think that uh, I've always felt that even when I was leading engineering, building products, that you ought to think about it like a general manager, mm. where the idea of the product 
was not sufficient to be able to make an impact on the world. The technology that we built needed to be absorbed by the customer and by their customers in turn to really have impact. And I think that sort of thinking like a general manager set me up eventually to be a CEO. I wonder about this because I, I talk to people just in, in everyday life who talk about wanting to be CEOs who are not CEOs. But then when I talk to CEOs, a lot of times they're like, oh, well, I never really had a plan to be a CEO. I wonder, is it like, I never had a plan to be on air, much different thing, yeah. right? Much lower level. Never had a plan to be on air, never had a plan to be an, an anchor. But I always wanted to be in the position where if the job was open, I'd be in consideration. Like, that's, correct. That, that's not my goal necessarily, but, but why not? I mean, at, at a certain correct. point, do you have to have that kind of mindset at least? I think you need to be prepared if the opportunity were to present, them, present itself. I always felt like, you know, if the opportunity presented itself, I should be prepared. On the other hand, you know, I didn't feel like if I weren't made CEO, at some point in my career that it would be a terrible thing either. I was enjoying what I was doing. I loved building great products for customers, uh, but it happened to be that, you know, I was probably in the right place at the right time. What is the most surprising thing about being in that CEO seat that you might not realize, even if you're just one or two steps away from it, about either the pressure or, hey, the perks of the job? I think it's the loneliness of the job in some sense. You know, you need to be um, in a place that allows you to be vulnerable. I think people uh, who step into the role sometimes, you know, and I felt this, right, early in my uh, tenure, that you needed to have an answer for everything. You needed to be, uh, you couldn't say that you didn't have an answer because you were set up to be between the board who were your supervisors and your management team who expected you to have the answer. And so it was okay, it's okay to be able to say, I don't know, we're hmm. gonna have to figure it out together. And that's one of the major lessons I took away from having led the transformation of NetApp over the last few years. People sometimes expect you to have a perfect view of where things are headed. And given the, the amount of change in the industry, I think it would just be, in a, you know, you'd be lying if you said that you had a perfect view. You just got to say, here's the general trajectory of where we're headed. These things are important, and it's okay to iterate and learn along the way. I hear often these days that the job of the technical leader or technical executive is harder than it used to be because now you're expected to be more of a strategic player or you've got to sell your plan or your idea to the CEO, even to the board, in different ways than you did before. Is that true? I think the uh, fundamental difference than it was a few years ago is the rate of change. I think technology leaders historically have been from a technical background where the precision and the ability to have a black and white answer was sort of their calling card. Mm -hmm. I think we all deal with the fact that there's no, you can't be you sort of have a 100% clear view. And so you've got to have this idea that here are some no regrets moves. I'm going to make these moves regardless of what happens. Mm -hmm. And then these I'm going to sort of watch and monitor and keep my organization 
aware of if the landscape changes, we got to respond quickly. And that's hard for people to do. I think it's hard for teams. I think it's hard for individuals. And you've got to keep communicating honestly about here's what's going on in the market that we're reacting to or that we're trying to shape. How do you isolate your no regrets moves? I think the no regrets moves that we uh, pick out are ones where we know that there's a general market trend or customer interest in you know, heading in a certain direction, that we are the best position to take that on. So you know, one of the core elements of our strategy is we always debate, are we the best position to do that? And if so, then we should do that and we should not do something else. And so those are two key considerations that we do. And uh, we look at those no regrets moves as either offensive moves, meaning, hey, we're going to do that to get even more competitive advantage, mm -hmm. or as defensive moves that say someone's going to do that and we better do it first huh. to ourselves. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on your workforce. And this is the kind of squishy, sometimes abstract issue of culture and, and things that you want um, NetApp's workforce to trust in, to believe, to go after, maybe in a unique way from, from a different company, and how you go about articulating that and then backing that up even when outside pressures are saying, eh, maybe that's not the most important thing. Whether it has to do with articulation of values or employee benefits or something else, do you have a, a few of those things that are, that are important to you as an executive? Absolutely. I think, to be honest, John, the place that um, made me confident that we could turn the company around and uh, set it up for even greater success in the early part of my CEO tenure was to spend time with our customers and our employees. We had many customers who we had done business with over the years and had done it in a way that was respectful of them, that put them as the center of what we were trying to do, that told me, we like you guys, we want you to succeed, we're willing to give you a shot. And uh, that was a really humbling experience for me because it made me realize that when you put goodwill into the market uh, and into your stakeholders, at times of need, they'll come back to support you. Our employees were a core part of that. I joke often that uh, the British royal family is supposed to bleed blue, but it's really NetApp employees who bleed NetApp blue. They've loved the company and uh, they stuck with us through tough times. I think that uh, we, had, we asked them to change the shape of the portfolio of technologies that we built. We asked them to change the way we interacted with customers, to bring on new partners, the big cloud providers, into our discussions with customers, and they have consistently stepped up. The core of, uh, you know, probably three or four core values that we espouse within the company is, uh, one is the passion for excellence. You know, we feel that we, our mission in the world is to empower our customers to change the world with data. And, you know, we have a passion that says that we gotta be excellent at doing that. And excellent means in every aspect, all the way from the way we build technology to the way we show up and support our customers. The second is that we try to be as transparent as possible in how we talk to our employees about the state of our business, both good things and bad things. 
you know, we say that here is things that we've done well, here are things that we need to do better at, and we say that every quarter. And there's no shame in saying that we've got to do better at certain things, it's just being honest. Hmm. And I think that that transparency uh, gives us, you know, people trust us because they say the leaders are not hiding behind the fact that something isn't working. They're just being honest that we got to do better at this. Then you got to roll up your sleeves and get into it. Passion for excellence and transparency sound great, especially when they're done in the, pure, in the plural. Like, oh, well, we have to be excellent and we're going to be transparent. But if there's a problem with my performance and, and the, the, the boss is saying, I've got to be excellent, and you know what? Transparently, you're not quite at excellent right now. Yeah. We're going to have to do something about it. That's less comfortable. How do you handle those situations, uh, especially at a time when uh, the job market is tight, there are issues of sensitivity and how different generations communicate about Absolutely. need for improvement? I think that's a place that we continue to work on, right? I think the first thing is that you have to show up or I have to show up and be excellent. And uh, I'm constantly working on that. You know, I cannot hold the uh, employees to a standard that uh, I don't hold myself to. And so I keep working on doing better every day. I don't think I'm perfect, but you're always striving for it. I think in terms of our discussions with people who aren't performing, I always say that it's important to be respectful, but give people clear actionable feedback. So show them evidence of places where they need to step up and also try to give them uh, feedback that allows them to take action. Don't just give them some vague generality. Mm. And so we try to do that. I think that's hard for people, hard for me. And so <laughs> we keep, I keep working on it. To yeah. be honest. One of the worst things to hear from a boss is some things are going to have to change. <laughs> what? Exactly. What's going to have to change? Into what? Exactly. So yeah, uh, vague is not good. You're a student of history. I wonder how the historical events, the, the historical characters you read about influence the way you lead, the way you strategize. Are there particular moments that you have studied, read about, uh, that, that you think are important and inform the way you approach things? I think I've learned a lot from history and from my own faith. You know, I think that um, at times when, uh, I'll give you a few examples. I think that one of the important things that uh, I've learned, especially when the going was tough, was to keep the organization and myself with a quiet confidence that you're not as bad as everybody says you are. <laughs> and when things are going well, to have the humility to realize that you're not as good as you think you are, mm. right? And so that came out of both reading from the struggles of many historical figures and this innate sense of faith that, um, you know, you gotta believe in yourself and things will get better if you do the right things. I think that, uh, you know, the second thing, I've been a big uh, fan of Abraham Lincoln, and uh, I think the amazing thing about his life was that he uh, learned all the way till he was killed. You know, he continued to evolve and keep learning from uh, the people around him and from his experiences, and that's something that I think is really remarkable and particularly useful these days. And so I try to keep doing that. I think the third lesson I've learned is that uh, 
you know, generations judge the succeeding generations and that's been the case throughout history. <laughs> and I think it's important to respect the fact that the newer generations uh, have profound impact on making the world better. You know, I was telling our team just a couple of weeks ago that if it hadn't been for the students in the southern part of the United States who went and sat at a lunch counter and said, I need to be served my food here, I don't think this country would have been in the place that it is today. We still have a lot of work to do in that area, but I frankly wouldn't be sitting in this chair. And it took those kids, young kids, in to make a difference where the prior generation did not have the means or the courage to take such action. And so we've got to be respectful of the norms that the newer generations have. Yeah, it's funny. You see some finger wagging now from the boomers. That's right. And then I think back and say, weren't these the hippies? Correct. Just exactly. a couple of generations That's ago exactly right. that the greatest generation was saying these kids need to whip themselves That's into shape. Exactly right. And now we've got the Gen Xers, which I count myself among, kind of looking down their nose a little bit at all oh, those millennials. So exactly weren't we right. the slackers just about 10 or 15 years That's ago? Exactly How did this right. happen? It's, it's interesting. One of the things like I've uh, observed is that, you know, if you look back, if we were to look back on our industry 100 years from now, I think that, uh, you know, people would say that um, my generation was the generation that built the tools of the information age. And if you look back at uh, major evolutions in industry or in society, the tool builder generation is not the one that maximizes the impact of the tools, you know, because mm -hmm. they love the tools that they create for the sake of the tool. It's the generation that comes typically about 30 years down the road that really utilize the tool and maximize its impact on humankind. So if you look at the steam engine, the steam engine was created, but perhaps its most profound use was actually in locomotion, uh, mm. in transportation, you know. And if you look at Johannes Gutenberg, who printed the Bible, uh, the most profound use was actually the democratization of information across the world. And that happened, you know, about 30 years after the printing press was created. And so our kids will be the ones that really take the tools of the information era and maximize its value. And so we ought to have that humility that they will be the really creative geniuses, not us. Well, with that optimistic, forward-looking statement, I think that's a great place to close. George, I appreciate it. Thank you, John. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note and one of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You'll also see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter and search for John Fort and follow me. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.